Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining me for Conversations with Dennis House for Seasons Magazines. I'm your host, Dennis House, and we've committed to sharing voices from around the state and celebrating potential and positivity. Today, we have a great show for you. We'll be talking to two Connecticut companies about their initiatives to support workers with special needs. We'll have a serious but important conversation about suicide prevention, recognizing Suicide Prevention Month, and finally, I'll talk with someone many people know, Steve Levy of ESPN. We begin with a conversation with Jane Mullen of The Nest and Kim Morrison and Noel Alex of Beans. And I think you'll be as impressed as I am with the good work these organizations are doing for workers with special needs. When I go out to a restaurant, I like to go to a place that's gonna make me feel happy. And there are a couple places in Connecticut where you walk in with a smile and you leave with an even bigger one. We're talking about Beans and The Nest. They are Connecticut businesses that have been built on the foundations of hiring people who have disabilities. These are small places, but they're making a big difference in our great state of Connecticut. Joining us now, Jane Mullen. She's the executive director of the nonprofit that runs The Nest in Deep River. The nonprofit, by the way, is called a little compassion. Also with us from Beans and Company in Avon, Kim Morrison and Noel Alex. They're the co-founder and the co-owner of Beans and Company right next door to the New England Pasta Company, which they also created. And ladies, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks for having us. Kim, I've been into Beans and Company, as you know, and my first time there, you go in and you sort of observe it. You look around and you just, it's such an upbeat, happy place. And it really made me really pleased to see that a place like this exists. So tell us, first of all, a little bit about your place. And then we'll check in with Jane to talk about The Nest. Beans and Company is coming up on our third anniversary in December. Um, It was originally a small cafe that was part of New England Pasta Company, and we felt like we really needed to reinvent it into something that was super special and inspired by our daughters, both of who have Down syndrome. We decided we wanted to create a place initially for them to have jobs because they were aging out of the system, um, reaching the age of 21, 22, where there's no opportunity. There's very few opportunities uh, for adults with IDD. And we just thought one day, you know, I had the space, I had the cafe, I had the kitchen, I had the inventory, all the big stuff of building something like this. You know, why not just reinvent it a bit and go to counter service? And that's kind of how Beans was born. Um, So it was with the idea of giving our daughters jobs, but then it just kind of morphed into something bigger and more wonderful, as you've seen, as time went on and as we grew the business. And is beans with a Z, by the way. Let's talk to Jane Moen about the nest in the great town of Deep River. Jane? The nest, you know, a similar backstory to Kim's in terms of I have a daughter with autism um, who is now 27. And at the time, this is, we were formed as a nonprofit three years ago. So again, similar to Kim's time frame, the nest opened two years ago in June. So we're, we're coming up on our third year. But what I really wanted to, to create uh, for my daughter and all of those that are neurodiverse like her 
is a place to be employed, but also for us, what was important was a place where where they found their people, where there was social opportunities, and and a coffee shop is a place where people are often they're they're social. They 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 come in looking to be social, and it's a very inclusive atmosphere in a coffee shop anyway. So it just made sense that a coffee shop could fit our model. Um, And we also wanted to work to change the community's perceptions of these young adults and get to know them and, and see all their strengths and appreciate who they are and what they bring to the community. So again, we've got, you know, we've got three things going on. We, we want to provide jobs. We want to provide um, social opportunities. We have a gatherings program that we do, and we want to have our community see our folks and get to know them better um, so that it changes our whole community, not, not just the lives of the young adults we serve. Jane, I want to just touch on something you said, neurodiverse. What does that mean exactly? That's a term I really haven't heard too much of. Yeah, neurodiverse is is about um, how we're all wired and how our brains work. And the idea of neurodiversity is that it en- encompasses lots of different things. So it, neurodiversity in- does include autism, but it also includes things like ADHD, depression, anxiety, Tourette syndrome. It's a, a way of looking at how people interact with the world world and making it sort of, it, they're neurodiverse, but we all are neurodiverse. But those that have more specific challenges because of their neurodiversity, it encompasses them as a whole, as opposed to talking about separate disability characteristics. Kim, let's talk a little bit about your staff. Who are they and what are their backgrounds? So when we started um Beans, we worked, we, we continue to work with um, Favar, which is a local agency, and provided uh, job descriptions to them about, you know, the different positions that we had available. Right now, we have three young adults coming from Favar with special needs. And then we have two other, right now, two other young men that are not part of an agency, which is a big part of the population that we feel need jobs as well. And then we are a 50-50 inclusive program business. So we have, they work right alongside each other with, with our support staff is what we call them. And everybody does every job. There's no, you know, watching people work the register. You know, everybody knows how to do just about every job that they're comfortable with. That's how we work our model. Noel, I want to bring you into the conversation now. When people come in, when customers come in and they don't really know what the place is about, what are their reactions? I think they pick out on a sense, just a like a, I would say an intangible sense of, I don't know, happiness, joy, warmth when they come into Beans. I, many people come in not knowing the mission. They come in because the food is excellent. We serve all the specialty coffees, but it's also primarily a restaurant as well, serving breakfast and lunch. So it's a really wide customer base. And I think once they come in once, they're always repeat customers, mostly probably because they get to know our staff. Now form these friendships and relationships with a pretty, a pretty wonderful group of people. I don't stop in as often as I'd like because I don't live in that area. But whenever I'm in the Avon area, I always try to drop in and get a coffee. And, of course, my wife likes all the pre-prepared meals you guys have there to take home and and, uh, make our lives a lot easier. Uh, Jane, and and I have not been to the Nest yet, but it is a place I definitely want to visit. Tell me about your staff and the people who work there. Yeah, we well, our staff come from a lot of uh, 
different avenues of, of how they come to us. We uh, work with all the local schools and we actually have interns and work experience folks who come in through their school transition program. Um, we really want to give young adults sort of that start into the world of work and get them some really positive experiences and feeling good about about working and being part of the work world, um, that sets the stage for future success because the number one predictor of success for a young adult with a disability is having had employment experiences in high school, believe it or not. So it's good to get these young adults with disabilities out there and in the community um, early on, as early as we can. So we work with the transition programs for those young adults, and they are often paid through the school district through some grants that they have. And then we have employees that we've hired directly that work for us and started off as uh, baristas. 100% of all of our baristas are young adults with disabilities. Um, And and then we have a grant-funded program uh, for young adults that are kind of fallen through the cracks, that they're not ready for paid employment yet, and there isn't services for them. I know Kim referenced sort of falling off the service cliff, mm-hmm. is you get out of high school and you age out, even if you've stayed until you're 21, there's there's nothing left. And if you're not ready for the world of work yet, we often lose those young adults to their couches and their computers. So this grant-funded program um, has them come in and do what we call our NEST program, um, which is new employment skills training. Um, and they spend up to six weeks with us between two and four hours a week, really getting those foundational skills and something to put on their resume and and more importantly, just the feeling like they want to work and they want to be a part of the world of work. And, and those soft skills, that's sometimes the hardest piece is those soft skills. And in a coffee shop, you need a lot of soft skills. Uh, you do need to <laughs> interact with the customers. And our customers love our staff, similar to what Noelle and it's Kim mentioned mm-hmm. it's just that 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 interaction and making people feel great when they walk in the door. We have folks who come in that say their their days are always better when they start them at the nest. Um, and our you know our employees because they're all so unique in how they approach the world. You know we have one young man who knows all of our customers' names. He knows their birthdays. He knows if it's going to be a full moon on their birthday this year or not. And um, you know it's just those kind of interactions that are so positive for our employees, but also for the community. Uh, I you know we've become a place to gather, and that feels really great. It's it's not just come in for coffee. It's you know come in and feel great and feel part of something special and important and inclusive. The changes that we've seen since we've started Beans, you know, back before Beans was a reality, these our customers didn't have the time to spend here. So when we changed the model, we were thinking, okay, so you go up and you order and it's really in your control how much time you spend at our cafe, thinking that they would spend less time. Well, the opposite has happened. Now we have people spending a lot of time here so that that kind of went out the window. Why? <laughs> well, I don't. It must have been the staff, you know, just changing that staff and changing who's serving you and waiting on you has made such a big difference in our community. To this day, three years later, I'm still in awe of what happens every day here. If a merchant came to you and said, "Listen, I, I I'm hesitant about hiring someone with intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities," convince me why I shouldn't feel that way. What would the answer be? So I want to say something really quick, Dennis. One of the amazing things that's happened here is that we've had employers, other employers from other businesses in town come here, watch what's happened. And um, there's been a couple that have, have been able to hire. Even just one adult with a disability is a win. You don't have to hire five you know, people or six people like we have. 
Um, so that is happening and more people are coming to us and, and, and they're curious and they want to do what we're doing. These are individuals that are on time. They don't miss a day. They, they are trustworthy. They are loyal. They, they're always looking for business like Nick calling you and saying to get, get over and visit Beans. I would say, you know, come in and check it out and see what happens here. And you're going to want to be a part of it. You just are. And I think the other thing that I am so impressed with, we, we wanted to change the community's perceptions. And I think we do that just by being who we are. But I didn't realize how deep some of that goes. I was in our bank making a deposit for the nest. And a woman I've known for years came up to me and she said, I want to I want to thank you for the nest. And she started to cry. And I, I, and so I just thought, okay, I just, I just need to listen. And I, I said, tell me more. And she said, I, I used to be afraid of young adults with disabilities because I didn't understand them. I didn't know how to talk to them. And I was afraid and I stayed away. And now I, I know I just need to get to know them and talk with them. And, and the nest made that possible. So, you know, we're really, as a community, having organizations like Beans and the Nest, we're, we're breaking ground and we're, we're changing perceptions in a big way that has been a long time coming. Ladies, I want to thank all of you for being with us here today. Jane Moen is the executive director of the nonprofit that runs The Nest in Deep River. I also want to thank Kim Morrison and Noel Alex of Beans and Company. That is Beans with a Z. If you're Googling it or trying to figure out where it is, it's right on Route 44 in Avon. They are co-founder, co-owner of Beans and Company and the New England Pasta Company. It's all in the same building right next door. And we thank you so much for your insight. This was a great conversation. Let's now talk about a subject that's difficult to discuss, but so very important. September is Suicide Prevention Month. And I was reading that one suicide can impact 100 people. And I recently interviewed a family whose son took his own life. They said it's the worst thing anyone can ever go through. Joining us now for Middlesex Health is the chair of the psychiatry department there, Dr. Jeffrey Shelton. Also with us today, Ken DeCapua. He is the supervisor of intensive in-home services for Middlesex Health's Family Advocacy Program. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us here today on Conversations with Dennis House for Seasons Magazines. Dr. Shelton, I will begin with you. Why is it important that we raise awareness about suicide prevention at this time of year? I think for two reasons. I think one is just the, as you were mentioning, just the absolute tragedy of suicide and the effects it has not only on individuals, but families and communities but also the, the alarming rate in which it's happening. Um, the rates of suicide have gone up almost 40% over the last 40 years. And so I think right now, there are so many things happening in society that really are kind of raising an alarm of, um, are people going to be at increased rate or increased risk for suicide? Why are those numbers going up over 40 years, do you think? I think there are several factors. I think part of it is we have an aging population and age can be a risk factor for suicide. In fact, older Caucasian men are amongst the highest risk demographic. So I think that's a factor. Other factors I think are also escalation in substance use, which is also a very important risk factor for suicide. I'm sure there are other variables out there. Why is it that demographic where suicide hits the most? If you look at the research on suicide, so there's a really great suicide researcher in Florida. His name is Thomas Joyner, and, and he identifies kind of two major risk factors for suicide. One is social isolation, and the second is perceived burdensomeness. And so I think as people get older 
and um, they lose connections, spouses die or what have you, then they don't have that social connectedness. And then as they age and physically they're kind of, you know, they're not working, they're unable to care for themselves. There is at times a perception of being a burden. Um, and both of those are, have been shown to be um, significant risk factors for suicide. Let's bring Ken DiCapua into the conversation. And Mr. DiCapua, any comments on what Dr. Shelton just said? Any any insight you'd like to add to that? No, no, just uh, that I, you know, I concur. I think that also just in terms of that demographic, I, I might add that lethal means uh, may, may contribute as well. Half of the suicides in the United States are from firearms. Women um, have a higher rate of attempting suicide, but men have a much higher rate of dying from suicide. So almost 70% of suicide deaths in the United States are men. And part of that is the fact that there is they tend to use more lethal means. But still, around 30% of women who die from suicide also use firearms. Have suicides gone up during the pandemic? I think that's yet to be fully understand. So what we, what we did see is that actually in 2020, the rate of suicide went down slightly. But I think that's a statistic to look at kind of carefully because that still is an incredibly high number. So nearly 45,000 people died from suicide last year. And while that may be a decrease from like 2018, overall, that is there's still a dramatic increase from 10, 5, 20 years ago. I think that the mental health effects of COVID-19 is going to outlast this virus, that the depression, anxiety, despair, mourning, and, and, and really the kind of loss of social connectedness in our social fabric, I think, is going to, going to have residual effects. Gentlemen, I want to ask you about preventing suicide. What are the warning signs our listeners should be looking for? Depression uh, is, a, is a major concern, obviously, and, a, and a, something for folks to be aware of. Past history of suicide attempts can also be uh, a warning sign and just an increase of risk to somebody who's had past attempts. The fact that substance use is up during the pandemic and can be a, a major um, increase in terms of risk. This may be a difficult question to answer as well, but what drives a person to take his or her own life? You know, I think it's severe despair, hopelessness. There is some theory that suicide is actually a progressive weakening, weakening of our self-preservation instincts. All of us have this instinct to, to survive. But as if you know, we have a genetic vulnerability to depression or mental illness, um, or if we've had prior attempts, that self-preservation thing does kind of reduce over time. And there's some really interesting examples of that, like with Kurt Cobain and people who have had, you know, um, died from suicide. And I think if if you are worried, if that if you think of suicide and you're worried about somebody, ask about it. I think there is sometimes people are are it's it's a difficult thing to talk about. I think it's okay to recognize that, but asking is not going to increase the risk of suicide. You're not going to implant the idea in someone. In fact, the, the opposite is true. Asking about suicide prevents suicide. Do you have success stories that you can refer to of people who were counseled, who were, they were suicidal and then decided not to do that? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we do every single day is, you know, we talk about with people who are struggling with depression or various mental illnesses. And we ask patients about, are they having thoughts of suicide? Are they wishing they wouldn't wake up in the morning? And then 
we intervene. And I think that's that's another really important thing is that there's there's a lot of talk about suicide screening, which is hugely important, but also we have to talk about suicide intervention. What do we do? What can we do to help somebody when they're having these thoughts? And how can we kind of open a dialogue with them and talk about what's going on, what's happening for you right now that you're feeling this kind of despair? And then making sure that they are getting connected to the right treatment that that can help reduce. We do have crisis, mobile crisis teams, and I and that they have. Uh, I, I can't say enough about the crews we have. We are part of a statewide network in uh, Connecticut that uh, will respond out for for children at risk, and so uh, that is through two one one. And folks could call two one one option one and immediately be connected with somebody who can triage. And if it if it makes sense, have somebody mobily come out to talk with and assess uh, any children who might be at risk. And uh, I think that it's one of those things that we probably don't know every story. Uh, success story um, because there is prevention that kind of naturally happens, but these folks do great safety and planning and uh, and connect folks with the services that they may need longer term. And is there a correlation between drug abuse, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, and suicide? Most definitely, it's a it's a major risk factor for suicide, um, particularly alcohol and and opioids. As we close out this conversation, anything that we should know about suicide prevention that you'd like to add? I would love to take a moment to put out to folks that we we do have a support group here at the hospital. It was actually Dr. Shelton's idea, and I took that idea and kind of ran with it. Uh, We had folks who had had grief and loss, but who were going to kind of traditional groups and feeling like if they were affected by suicide, they just needed something a little different. And so we started the Together We Heal support group, started just before COVID, survived through COVID, uh, virtually, and now has been able to to meet again uh, face-to-face. My direct line is 860-358-3426. Folks can call anytime, uh, leave a message, and I will call back and inform them about the group. We're currently meeting on the first Monday of the month at 5.30, but the group has become so kind of cohesive. If that doesn't work out, we find another time and another day. We've also have a rolling text messaging group, a kind of a text thread, so folks can reach out for support when they need it, and folks can offer support when they know difficult times, anniversaries, birthdays, other things are coming up. And so it's really taken on a life of itself, and I'm, I'm very proud of it, and uh, we're hoping to actually expand. Dr. Shelton, any final thoughts? I think the main thing is get help. That's it. Get help. And what I tell my patients when they come and see me is I have one rule, and that is show up. All you have to do is show up. If you show up, treatment does work. Treatment does work. But I think in our society, mental illness and seeking treatment for mental illness, there's so much stigma around that, that that can be a barrier to getting help. But treatment does work. And so if you're struggling or if you know someone who's struggling, you know, please yourself or encourage your, your loved one to get the help because it can make a difference. It can save their life. Dr. Jeffrey Shelton and Ken DiCapua from Middlesex Health. We appreciate your insight today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Our next guest is someone perhaps you might recognize from television. He's a longtime sportscaster on ESPN, now the host of Monday Night Football, and I am proud to call him my friend. Please welcome Steve Levy. Steve Levy, thanks so much for being with us here today. Hey, Dennis, my long-lost friend, how are you? 
Good. It's great to be talking with you. I love watching you on Monday Night Football. I think you're doing an amazing job. And so I need to ask you, what is the average week like for Monday Night Football? When does it begin? So, and listen, this can't, this can't come off as a complaint, right? Because it's, yeah. you know, it's my all-time dream job, but there, really <laughs> are, there are no days off. And so um, I'll just give you a feel for it. So let's pretend we're coming out of a game on Monday night. We fly back home fly back to West Hartford on Tuesday. And by the time I land at Bradley, I will have already watched our Monday night game in its entirety. That's a, that's a really big piece to the start of the work week. Yeah. It's still going back and watching every second. All right. So then it's, uh, you know, it's kids and all that stuff on Tuesday and Tuesday night, and then uh, get them off to school on Wednesday. And then we have our zoom call with just uh, the on-air people and our producer and director and we rehashed the game that was, mm-hmm. okay? So we're trying to, you know, make all the critiques there, constructive criticism, and sort of flush that away. We have so much information never got on the air. And so let's say noon on Wednesdays, the previous game is done. And then it's all the family stuff, you know, Wednesday night and Thursday sure. morning. And then Thursday at 11 a.m., we have another Zoom. This has about 50 people on it. And this now is the beginning of the next game. So the separation is really very small. And by the end of Wednesday night, so we've had our Zoom rehashing the old game. I will have completed my boards for the new game. When I say the board, the spotting boards, all the players, height, weight, average, hometown, college experience, notes. I will have completed that because I get them printed out on Thursday after the Zoom looking forward. And then, buddy, Friday I put the kids on the bus. And it's I'm gone. I'm really home two and a half days a week during Monday night football. And uh, we're off to the next site. And so, so we get there Friday, it's work in the room, try to get together in this crazy COVID world for, you know, for dinner with the crew Saturday morning, we meet with the home team at the home team's facility Sunday afternoon. We wait for the road team to land. And then we usually zoom now these days. And then uh, Monday start bright and early and Monday's game day. So that's, it's a week, buddy. It's it's a wild week, but it's it's Monday Night Football. It's awesome. Yeah, this is the dream job. So let's let's go way back. Tell us a little bit about Steve Levy growing up. You're a product of Long Island. What was that yeah. like? And when do you? What's your earliest memory of watching football on TV? Yeah, so I had an unbelievable childhood, uh, and I re- really feel strongly about that. Where I grew up uh, in Merrick, Long Island, and I lived on this street. Uh, had six or seven houses and. Uh, to my sister's dismay, it was like all boys on the street, all buddies for me and nobody for her. <laughs> and uh, it was a sports crazy street. And because it was a, such a small street, it wasn't a cul-de-sac, but a small street, uh, hardly any cars went down the street, right? So we were able to play hockey and football and baseball on the street really every single day. So I was a massive sports fan early. I do remember announcing the games that we were playing in, you know, ridiculous, but that's, yeah. that's what kids who go out and grow up to be sportscasters apparently did. You know, you find out <laughs> at an early age, you have not a shred of athletic ability and uh, all right, maybe I can talk about it. So uh, the thing I remember most about watching Monday night football was begging my folks to get to halftime and watching the highlights from around the league. Like again, from my memory, it was a long time ago, Dennis, my memory is of the game itself was actually secondary. The halftime was the coolest. Howard Cosell doing the highlights because that was the only way you saw all the games, right? There was no yep. prime time. You couldn't see the highlights. The only games you got were your local games. You know, we got right. Jets, Giants, 
and the Cowboys at four o'clock every week, right? And so the only way to see all the other games was the halftime highlights with the music. And so, uh, and so that's when I fell in love with the game. And you are a Jets fan dating back to the early days at Shea Stadium. Uh, you're a little bit young to probably remember seeing Joe Namath play, but maybe. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't remember that. I probably went to my first Jets game in uh, you know seventy three, seventy four. So I'm eight or nine years old. My dad had a buddy who had season tickets, and he would give us one game a year, right? Yeah. And, you know, we didn't get to pick it. It was always like the last game. The Jets were out of it. it was the <laughs> worst possible weather. In but I loved it. I loved every second of it. I loved going to the games. I loved seeing the dirt on the infield at Shea, right, for the Mets still. It was just so unique. And the swirling winds. And I really look forward to that, yeah. How did you get your start in broadcast? So, again, it really goes back to the lack of athletic ability. And, again, I, I played everything. <laughs> I, like every other kid, I played every sport. I just wasn't good at anything. And uh, I loved the games. I loved watching them on TV. I loved going to games. And, quite frankly, I still do. I still love going to games. I love going to the yard goats here in Hartford. I take the kids. I'll even go on like a date night to the yard goats. It's it's a great adult night too, not just with the family. That's the love of sports. I had a huge break growing up, bud. Uh, my dad had an old army buddy who wound up being a massive agent, not sports, but a massive television agent. And he had a sports person. And so uh, I went to SUNY Oswego. Uh, which is, you know, outside of Syracuse, which uh-huh. you know, all the broadcasters go to. And so I wound up having that connection. And my dad's buddy said, hey, let me look at the tape. And they looked at it and said, all right, we think he's got a shot. And that's all I wanted, man, right? Just, you're not, you're not saying, I'm not, I'm not crazy. I got a shot to be in the, in the biz. And this thing sort of took off from there. How did your marriage with ESPN begin? Did they pursue you? Did you just apply for a job? And when you got that final offer, you must have been thrilled. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked about my marriage with ESPN. I wasn't sure exactly where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> so I was living in Manhattan, man, and I was living the life, right? I was on with, uh, I was doing the sports on IMUS in the morning for like three weeks. So I was at WFAN four days. I was doing two days a week at WCBS TV, Channel 2 in New York. And that's pretty good for a 26-year-old or something like that at that point. Absolutely. I had done, I had done MSG, halftime of the Knicks in between periods of the Rangers and, you know, Marv Albert's thrown to me on the radio and on the TV side. So, and honestly, at that point, I was all about New York and the local sports scene. I really wasn't an ESPN guy because ESPN was really full national. They were all about stuff I wasn't focused on. I was focused on the New York sports teams, right? We had two in each sport, sometimes three, if you count hockey, and so uh, ESPN came calling to us. We did not reach out to them. And uh, the agent I mentioned, uh, he got a call and they said, I'd love to talk to you. And I said, look, I'm not going to Bristol, Connecticut, right? I'm, I'm 26. I'm single. I'm living in a high rise in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm on TV. I'm going to the garden in between, uh, in between the six and the 11 o'clock newscast and back. And I was living my best life. And that was really one of the advantages of working in New York City that the executives at ESPN could see and hear your work, right? The proximity. So they came back a second time, even better offer. I really didn't want to go. I went to the Channel 2 news director, WCBS. I said, don't make me go. I don't want to go. And like, Steve, you're too young. You can't be the number one guy. And I, I got it. And my agent said, listen, you can turn down ESPN, but they're not going to come back a third time. 
And uh, they wound up up in the offer a little more. And I, I took it and I went and Dennis, I wasn't happy about it. I was not thrilled at the time. I'm the true native New Yorker. I mean, everything people say, the way I sound, the way I dress, the way I look. I mean, everything about me is New York. Is my act, you know, is that going to fly nationally? And I really wasn't sure. And Bristol was this sleepy little town. Yeah. Quick story. I get up there my first night in long-term housing. They, they put me in long-term housing, a hotel for two months or whatever. I go to a movie Tuesday night, 10 o'clock, whatever. And I am the only person in the theater. I swear to you. <laughs> the only person in the theater. And uh, I figure, all right, they're just going to refund my seven bucks or whatever it was and say, hey, we're not going to show it. And no. The guy on the glass, the projector, taps on the glass, bang, bang, bang. Are you ready? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, and this was my welcome to Bristol. And they showed the movie just for me. And obviously, fast forward to, oh, my God, greatest decision I ever made for me and my family. Absolutely. You know, 29 years later, and you were you were hit pretty quickly there. Now you're doing Monday Night Football. You have three beautiful children. Much like me, you know, your kids are going through West Hartford sports, West Hartford schools. What makes this such a great place to be a dad. It's just the feeling, man. I, I, I love my street. I feel like it's the best street in America. I love the town. Uh, I know that people come from all over. People move to West Hartford. I hear this all the time because of the school district. And so how lucky are we to be able to live here and want to be here? Uh, it is the proximity to ESPN when I still need to be in Bristol. Uh, I probably could move. I probably could go other elsewhere and just fly to Monday night, you know, uh, from wherever. Uh, but I love it here. I love the town. My folks are still on the island. My sister's in Branford. Uh, I love the downtown area uh, <laughs> and everything that it has to offer. I love being able to walk around. So it's got kind of a little bit of a big city feel to a nice small town. It's just the people are so nice, the neighbors and the sports and the sports are great. My daughter's involved in it, too. Uh, but the schools are really the big one. Uh, I feel like my kids have really thrived in the community and I remain so happy here. Steve, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your job and just your skills, because it always blows me away. Like the other night, there was a tackle, the Green Bay Packers game, and instantly, you know, these players' names just by the numbers. And yeah. I did sports casting for about six months in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was a disaster because you had to learn all these players. And so what is the trick? Do you just know it or is there a list or do you study or how does it go? All right. So it's cheating, Dennis. I mean, quite frankly, it's cheating. There's no <laughs> way I could know, you know, a, a guy in the middle of a pile of 12 people. Right. And I can pick out his number. So uh, we have these things called spotting boards. And I kind of mentioned it. That's what I edit yeah. on Wednesday night. Uh, there's a gentleman named Tony Britt who has this unbelievable, unbelievable factory of spotting boards. He does it for just about every sportscaster in the country. He makes the boards themselves. They're giant cardboard boards. 12 by 18, let's say. And so they have the Packers defense listed on them. Every player gets their own big box, name, number, height, weight, years in the league, contract status. And then there's a blank area for me to write in notes about him, his history, cool, cool little nuggets, research nuggets that we get. And so on the opposite side of that is the offense of the Lions in this case with the exact same thing. So if you can picture it, one board is taped to the top of the other board. Okay. And so, therefore, the center on the offensive line is facing the nose tackle of the defensive line. And I have a spotter with me, and his name is Ben Boma, and he does a great job. And he is standing to my left, and his job is to point out who has the football and who tackles that person with the football. And I know that might sound crazy. I'm at the game. 
But we are really high. We are really far away. I am staring at a giant television monitor. And this is also a dirty secret. I mean, I'm at the game. I'm watching 90% of the game on TV, just like the person at home. Because why should you on the couch have a better seat than, why should you be able to see more than I can? So I'm watching on the monitor. <laughs> My buddy Ben is pointing out players and things that happen. And, and then every once in a while, I'll glance up and see what's going on in the field. Well, you do an amazing job, and so does he. And Steve, I want to ask you, because I had you on News 8 recently on This Week in Connecticut. I asked you a lot of questions, but I had some viewers who said, why didn't you ask about this? And as you know, the Whalers are still pretty powerful here in Connecticut. Yeah. The, you know, the memory people love them. And someone asked me, what would it take to get a team? And I basically said, listen, I said, I think you need a billionaire to come forward, right? That's the first thing, a billionaire with unlimited pockets. But what is the real answer here? The real answer, Dennis, you and I have had this conversation offline, too, and I don't think it's ever going to happen. I, for, a, for a little while there, I thought there was some hope. Uh, I don't want to be the, the Debbie Downer on this. I, I just don't see it happening. The biggest piece, yes, the billionaire, unlimited wealth, uh, big pockets is the, is the building and the real estate that would be required. The arena and the stadiums now are just about all that counts you need corporate help. You need you need big corporate business in a city or nearby to buy up all those luxury suites that are necessary to make these things go. You know, it's really interesting because there are two great new uh, NFL stadiums, Allegiant in um, in Las Vegas and SoFi in L.A. And yeah. these are like billion dollar productions, right? And five, five and a half billion in L.A. Five, five and, and a half billion. billion with a B. Now they're hosting two teams, but yes. And now some of these other cities that have relatively new stadiums, they're now being called old and they need to be replaced. Where do you see this going? Yeah, it's it's like it's it's keeping up with the Joneses or the Smiths or the houses in your case. Yeah, like college football <laughs> forever has done that, too. Right. Michigan adds a couple seats and now Alabama's got to add some or Penn State. Right. They're they're constantly trying to add to have the largest capacity in all of in all of sports or certainly in college football anyway. Uh, it is the modern conveniences. We're going to Dallas this week, you know, and, and Jerry's world has now become like not an afterthought, but it's down the list sure. based on Allegiant in Vegas and SoFi in L.A. But the, the video scoreboard now, the, the luxury suites that are on the field, like they're not great seats, but you're on the field. And because of the way those scoreboards are set up, the video scoreboards, they have an underneath screen. So the people down low can see exactly what the people up top can see, too. So it is about concessions. It's about restrooms, quite frankly. It really is, you know, and it's convenience and Wi-Fi. And the biggest problem, Dennis, the game's gotten too good on TV. Yeah. The game is so good on television, the NFL keeps reinventing itself to make it still attractive to deal with parking and concession lines and those kinds of things. And they've obviously done a great job with it. I was at City Field recently. They had padded seats. I was a little surprised. It just it, that is the future. Gone are the long urinal troughs and cold yes. bench seats of Shea Stadium, yes. right? All right, Steve Levy, I appreciate all your time today. You do an amazing job, and we're looking forward to seeing you uh, just around West Harbor. I'll tell you, I, you know, personal knowledge. Obviously, I've been friends with you for a while. Steve is a great guy, very humble. Uh, if you see him, say hi to him. He'd love to chat. So, Steve Levy, thanks so much for being with us here today. Hope to see you soon, Dennis. Be well. Absolutely. We so hope you've enjoyed these interviews. If you have, please share this podcast with your friends and be sure to follow Seasons Magazine on social media so you can know about new episodes of this podcast and all the other content and features of the magazine and website. I'm Dennis House for Seasons Magazines. Until next time.